Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. I am your host, Nick Webster, and today on the show, I am delighted to introduce a very old friend of mine. He has the most gorgeous pipes since Sir Winston Churchill. Uh, he's commentated on matches throughout the world, from collegiate to the very top, to internationals. He's well-traveled, he's well-liked, he's a good buddy of mine, and he's a very, very, very good play-by-play -play commentator. Christian Miles, welcome to The Bear and the Ball. Uh, happy to be here, and I'm blushing. Thank you for the more than kind words on the introduction, my friend. Well, it's all right. I know you're going to pay me 20 bucks after the show That's to, uh, you know, the, 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 sta the standard Nick Webster bribe for uh, a glowing introduction. Well, I pay all your bar bills anyway, so, you know, what's, what's another 20 spot? <laughs> so let's talk about this play-by-play -play industry, Mr. Miles. Um, how did it all begin for you? I know you're from, uh, you're up north, um, and I'm not talking about Manchester. I'm talking about <laughs> Oregon, uh, raised, raised in Portland. Um, what was the, the genesis of you entering the world of TV and then making those next steps into talking about the beautiful game? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, I'll try and keep this short. I was in university up in Portland, Oregon, and was in a communications department up there. And one day saw a bulletin board for an internship at a local channel, applied, long story short, got it, and then eventually uh, became employed by this channel after I graduated from university and worked there for a year or so. And Eventually took some time off and an acquaintance of mine had moved down to Los Angeles and offered me a job at Fox Sports International back in 1997. And it was the launch of what is now FS1, formerly Fox Soccer Channel and before that Fox Sports World. Uh, long story short, I started off as, as a production assistant and, you know, was, was heating up coffees and bringing in the donuts and going on errands and, you know, basically doing uh, everything that nobody else wanted to do. So, uh, and eventually I, I just, I started watching and, and learning and, and appreciating the finer aspects of these announcers and what they were doing. And I looked to myself and I said, Hey, I can do that. And lo and behold, one of the opportunities came up uh, where one of the announcers was sick and all eyes looked at me and said, get in there. And I gave it a go. And um, more stumbles than successes is an understatement. It was horrendous. It was bloodshed, <laughs> verbal bloodshed, as I call it. Wasn't pretty, uh, but like anything, you get yourself up, dust yourself off, and you know, put your next best foot forward. And um, ended up going from there and building and building, and you know, kind of carved out a niche. And fortunate enough to have been employed for over two decades to present day, calling games and. Not just football, not soccer, but also other sports as well. But you know, my my love is soccer. So, yes, a, a very blessed, lucky, fortunate, right place at the right time, and in combination of all those factors, along with you know perseverance as well, I think has kind of gotten to me where I am today. Well, let's take a step back. Um, you know, I have a lot of young people listening to this podcast, and and some of them have this real desire to be a play-by-play -play announcer because it is one of the best jobs in the world. But so let's go back to the beginning and, and talk about the importance of internships. I mean, what value do they think do you think they have? Because I think for, for many young people today, uh, they look at internships as, you know, something akin to slave labor. But do you think they provide a valuable um, stepping stone and introduction? 
Absolutely, Nick. Um, there is an argument for what you say about you know it being slightly exploitive. You're not being paid, but I think if you're an intern and you're going into a program where you see yourself playing the long game, it's a career that you're going to see yourself in for a number of years, then what you get back for a lack of money is worth its weight in gold. You get an education, you learn how to do things, the nuance. There's just so much to learn, and you may think you know it all going into it, like I did, and lo and behold, I learned that I didn't know it. And I'm more than grateful for um, having that internship that I did at television in Oregon and then learning those skills and, and applying them to my present day in sports. So, yes, it was, it was immensely valuable. You talk about being a production assistant, uh, the lowest of the low. Well, I guess the intern's the lowest of the low, but maybe the production assistant because, you know, now you are actually technically fully employed even though you're – making absolutely nothing and you are the dog's body how do you separate yourself as a pa from all the other pas because we're in this you know tv very competitive environment and from from my experience uh, working with you and working at fox no one wants to be a pa forever so how do you separate yourself from the other pas while at the same time remain part of that tight-knit team unit which is so important for a, a TV production to run well. You know, I mean, to use a colloquialism, I guess, for lack of a better word, it's like being on a team and you want to make yourself first team, first name on the team sheet. You have to make yourself completely valuable where your superior, your manager, your coach, your teacher, your boss, you're indispensable. You are a must-have on any broadcast. You distinguish yourself, obviously, by putting in the hours and learning, but doing what's asked of you, paying attention, being alert, and grinding it out. And what I mean by grinding it out, that's a general term, but you know as well as I do, there's a lot of things that are not so glamorous about this trade that we ply. Um, but doing the best foot, best that you can and, and learning from those around you and you know, being humble and learning when you're wrong because you don't know it all even though you think you do know it all. And, and just basically just being a sponge and learning as much as you can and really honestly working as hard as you can and doing the unglamorous things, the hard yards, as we say, to get where you want to be. Because you're right, Nick. Production assistant is not the end-all, be-all. It's, you know, it's one step above intern. That you, It's a stepping stone to where you want to go, whether it's in front of the camera, behind the camera, in a business role, whatever. Uh, it's a great foundation to establish the, the nuts and bolts and the groundwork for um, you know, building a platform to bigger and better things. And I think that's not what I, just I did, but you did as well. Talk about the, the attitude and mindset of, of just saying yes, even though you know that you're not qualified. And you, you brought it up in your first story. Hey, the play-by-play announcer can't make it today. Marzi, you're in there. And you just say yes, even though you know that you're not, ready for the position. What is that mindset there where you're willing to take a chance? Well, after the initial complete freak out, you have to have faith in yourself and confidence in your ability. And the reason that you're there in the first place as an intern, as a production assistant is for these opportunities to arise. And you have to go outside of your comfort zone and learning is sometimes painful you have to make yourself vulnerable, but you have to go outside your comfort zone and try something new and have confidence in yourself that, hey, I, I got to this point. 
I'm an intern. I'm a production assistant at one of the top broadcasting networks in the country, and if not the world. So there's a reason why I'm here. I'm good at what I'm doing. Why can't I take this next step? A lot of it is confidence, and you just do that. And you're going to make mistakes. You can't be afraid to make those mistakes. What you can do is when you do make those mistakes, learn from them, admit them, own up to them, and then work on correcting them and, and making yourself better and growing. And I think you know, it's, that's universal advice, I would say, for any profession, but it, it's applied to me and it's helped me enormously throughout my career. In the early days of the channel, <clears throat> I remember us just getting thrown to the wolves on, on, a, on a regular basis. And you'd go in and all of a sudden you've got to commentate or do raps on three, four, five games. How did you prepare yourself in terms of, of studying? Because sometimes you'd be given a game with like you say, five minutes notice, and now you need to go on air and be the voice of authority and have the stats and have the stories and know the, know the characters that are involved in this you know, great play of life, which we call the game of football. A lot of opportunities when they arise are not ideal and they don't come when you want them to come and when you're ready for them, but you have to be as prepared as possible and you take those chances. I diligently read everything I could get my hands on. And I was at a significant disadvantage having not played the game, having not been raised in a culture that valued the game and understood its nuances and intricacies and its overall meaning to the community and the audience that it serves. And it was a lesson. It was a long time learning and uh, it was a long education, but I you just do everything that you can to learn as much as you can. When I say be a sponge, and that's, I can't think of a better way to put it. You have to just absorb, listen to others, your peers, what they're doing, read everything you can get your fingers on, um, and, and just go about and absorbing all that information and channeling it into producing your best product that you can produce. And I think that's, it's, it's pretty basic. You know, you, you've got to put in the hard yards, you got to put in the work and, it, 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 preparation, like anything in this world, you know, it, it is almost everything. And the more you prepare, the better you set yourself off. Things are going to be uncomfortable. You're going to fall down, but you got to get back up and do your best. Like you said, you know, you, you weren't raised within the game, although you are known as the leaping salmon in, in some quarters <laughs> for a magnificent uh, a goal you once scored in, in, in my presence. Um, you talk about the it was, all, it, was all, it was all that ball in. It was that great service in. Yeah, that, that, I think it was my ball. Um, <laughs> now you talk about those those first couple of years where you're really trying to understand the nuances of the game. What what was the biggest challenge in 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 commentating? Because I think that for 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 many people, you you go to a game of soccer uh, physically, and you see this wide expanse, and you can see the patterns that are developing, you can see the runs that are made that you don't see on TV. On TV, and, and we many, many times were on in a, in a tiny booth uh, with a TV screen the size of, a, size of a laptop. And we've got to try and, number one, identify players, but then identify what's going on in the game. So for someone who, who hasn't you know, really grown up in the game, what were those challenges like in those first few years? Difficult. Uh, very, very difficult. I was extremely uncomfortable and having to, most commentators are on site, meaning they are at the stadium where the game is transpiring live. 
and you have the added benefit of seeing angles and a play that you will not see because you're confined to a screen. Well, as you know, my days at Fox Sports International, I'm in a booth in Los Angeles at 4.30 in the morning and the game's kicking off at Munich at 12.30 in the afternoon. And all I have is this tiny, tiny laptop size screen, sometimes even smaller, and you're at the mercy of the pictures that are given to you. And it's really difficult to capture the essence and convey the message of tactics and nuance and runs because you just can't see them. And you know, often the players are the size of your fingernail and, and just trying to identify them is a chore in itself. So there, it definitely makes it challenging. It makes you better as a commentator after having to do it what they call off monitor um, because you really have to pay acute attention, understand the details, and really, really just have a intense uh, understanding of what's going on and an intense application of watching the game and learning the game and, and seeing the tendencies, the nuances, and the runs off the ball and everything else associated with with with, so with a soccer match. So yes, it's, it's difficult. Um, On-site is a completely different animal, like doing radio is a different animal to television. But it was difficult, and it was it was very hard, and you're in you're subject to the scrutiny of the masses, and you're going to make mistakes, and it's hard not to take those. It's difficult not to take those to heart and be affected by it, but you've got to believe in yourself and move forward. Yeah, well, let's let's quickly discuss that uh, that component where and 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 I experienced it as well as you did the the brutality of GP, otherwise known as the general public. Um, <laughs> That first time, those first few times that you get an email um, scrutinizing, let's call it scrutinizing your play-by-play -play ability. I mean, what does that feel like? And, and, and how do you feel like you recovered from that? Scrutinizing is the, is the G-rated version of what you're talking about. Funny, funny, funny backstory there, uh, friends of the show, that Mr. Webster and I had a competition to see who could amass the most hate mails. Safe to say, I think I took the top prize and course the prize being we get to tape said emails to the office wall as a reminder of our exploits but uh it's difficult nick i mean no one likes to be criticized and i think it's in our nature and it's you know it's just it's just part of being human no especially when you're honestly trying to do something to the best of your abilities and there's always going to be critics out there and anybody that's operated in this sphere this professional environment of broadcasting or media is subject to it and even the most successful up to Rebecca Lowe who I hold in the highest esteem is going to be subject to these types of criticism some of it's founded some of it's constructive some of it's just downright mean and malicious and you have to be able to roll with it you have to be thick-skinned and it would that was a hard one for me to learn but you know it makes you a better broadcaster I think it's 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 part of life it's almost metaphorical for life You've got to be able to take those bumps and bruises and, and move on. And that's part of it. That's part of the learning process. So now you're, you're getting comfortable with your voice, commentating games. But the next step is, as you described, being in vision. And that is a completely different kettle of fish. Describe that first time when you were on camera and you have... You've got a set, you've got cameramen. The stakes are so measurably higher. And you know that any flub is going to be picked up upon. And you yet haven't developed that muscle 
to power through. Tell us what the, that first show was like. Terrifying. I mean, like an actor or a, a stage performer, you go up there, you don't have a basis of experience to draw upon, to look to. Again, you just have to have the confidence in the skills that you have built up and learned that have gotten you to that point and belief in yourself to do it. But, you know, a couple of changes of underwear, a couple of shows later, things started to get a little bit more comfortable. There's always an element of nervousness. And you and I had a boss who gave us some good advice. He said, the day you become comfortable on television and in vision or on camera, however you want to put it, is the day that you really have to think about your career because you're not doing something right. That nervousness, that motivation, that fear of failure is something that motivates everybody. And that is part of that in that particular circumstance where, yes, you're every little movement down to the eyebrow hair being out of place is subject to criticism. And it's going to come. The praise is probably not going to come in equal measure. Um, and you have to be able to deal with that. But it was terrifying. Nick. I'm not going to lie. You were there for a whole lot of that, those growing pains. You know, you've, you've got to be able to, to balance a lot of different things going on simultaneously. At the same time, you've got to think of it this way. You have to be able to be calm, cool, and composed. Hold a conversation while the bookshelf is getting set to fall in on you three feet away. And that's the kind of metaphor I would use to describe that. It's, it's just a sense of calm, understanding, and belief that you've just got to keep going. It's, you know, and we can sit here in retrospect and hindsight's 2020 that it's so easy, but it will go on. Things will go on and this too soon shall pass. You get through it. You do the best that you can. Like I said, you know, mistakes will be made. And eventually that terror level, that infinite, uh, terrifying feeling goes away a little bit. You get more comfortable with yourself and then you develop your personality. Some people, it takes longer like myself. Some people are naturals. Uh, it's just dependent on the individual and who you are and your personality. Talk about the the role that multitasking plays when you are on camera. You're interviewing somebody. You have to listen to what they're saying. You have to be formulating your next question on what they're saying. Meanwhile, you have a producer in your ear. And if they're a cool producer like me, they would be very, you know, very calm. Hey, Miles, this is where we're going next. And then again, they're these men, mental producers who are screaming at you, screaming at the rest of the crew in the truck. And now you're, 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 you know, you're trying to hold everything together because you've got a camera on you. And meanwhile, there's a thousand different things going on in your head. Tell me how you uh, compartment, compartmentalized those components of being on air talent. Um, it's, it's difficult. If you don't have a cool head and you can't take criticism and you can't multitask, then you, you better find another profession because that's part and parcel part of the trade and it's difficult i i didn't realize how difficult it was and you know just you're having multiple conversations and like you said you're trying to do about three to four different things being subject to being watched by millions of people <laughs> and there's watching your every move and you're trying to listen really listen to what your guest is saying and you're trying to keep the show moving forward the producer directors in your ear it's difficult and you've got time as well where someone's saying, hey, we've got one minute. So you have to be able to spin a lot of plates at the same time and be able to handle that and keep calm. Just keep calm and move on, move forward, stay focused on what you're doing. The most important thing I think I would say that it really is hard for me to focus 
not on how you're being washed or that in fact you're being washed in the first place. Just focus on the task at hand and the conversation that you're having. And then that will come and that will transform into a good performance by yourself. And it, that's, it's easier said than done, but I think that really is the key. You know, you're you a full-time employee at Fox and, and then there was some changes within the, the structure and, and you became the hand. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we joke about that a lot, but um, you became this, a sideline reporter, uh, which entailed being on the road every single week, every single weekend for three, four days. How, how was that uh, in terms of staying current with, with, with who you are when you're moving around all the time? And then every weekend, finding yourself in a brand new environment, because, you know, think about this, you know, when, when we were at the station in Santa Monica, it's the same VO booth every time, you know, it's the same people. But now you're in an environment where everybody is different every single time. It's, 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 well, one, that's also part and parcel of normal sports broadcasting. And I was fortunate enough to be introduced to on-site broadcasting as a sideline reporter, that was my first foray to actually being on site and live. And once you get a taste of that, it's the best thing ever. And it was difficult. And, you know, a lot of broadcasters here in the United States, since it's such a large area, a large swath of geography that, you're, that is, has to be covered, that it's regionalized. And you can therefore focus on those teams in your region. Well, when we were doing it here, we were the network. And you're covering teams from Seattle all the way down to, to Florida, and Tampa Bay. And, it's a new team each week that you may not have seen, and you've really got to do extra preparation, or as opposed to a, a club broadcaster who's familiar with his team or her team each and every week. You don't have to basically start from ground zero and build up your knowledge. So, but you are doing that, and you also have to keep in tune to what's going on with the game as well, and and how things develop spontaneously because you know it, it, things change. It's not nothing goes as scripted as we know, and you have to be able to adapt and improvise. And, Something's can something's bound to happen. That's why we watch this game, right? That's why we love this game. The beautiful game is just the unthinkable often becomes, you know, reality. And you have to be able to reflect that and, and ask that question. And my the way I approach it was ask that question that the guy who's sitting on the couch would want to ask the coach. What are you doing? Why are you playing so and so? What is going on here? Why can't you defend, you know, that deep run from you know, the touchline in or why, why are you having such a hard time handling these, these area balls and such just as a few examples. So yeah, it's, it's difficult, but it was, it was a great learning experience and it was exciting. You know, you're on a plane every other weekend and um, you can focus on your career. You do sacrifice your weekends. You're working when your peers and a lot of your friends that are outside of the industry are out playing and you want to be a part of that, especially as a younger man. And, that's a difficult thing to sacrifice, but something that all of us that work in media have to sacrifice. That's our work week. That's our Monday morning, nine o'clock until nine to, to five o'clock. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Just to wrap this up, you know, let's, let's talk about asking the hard question because, you know, it's your responsibility to go to players and coaches after the game who may have had an absolute stinker may have suffered a, a last minute, you know, uh, a winner and they're absolutely gutted. Now you have to ask the hard question. Yeah. How challenging was that? And, and who was the toughest manager 
that you ever had to ask a question to when you are just, you know, your, your, your bottom's quivering? Well, it's the hardest job. It's the hardest single task of broadcasting is going into a losing locker room or going into basically talking to someone who feels like they've been wronged or aggrieved. And it's not, you know, no, no losing coach wants to talk about it. And even though they know it's part of their job description to answer these questions from people like me, I am the last person they want to talk to, whether I ask the most poignant, relevant question or I throw them a softball. You have to be gentle with them. <laughs> it's ingratiate yourself and, and you know, come in softly and maybe give them a, a time to say, hey, be, be general about it because we want to hear what they're thinking, right? What happened? Where do you think it went wrong? You, you did some things well, but where do you think things might have gone better? And, and you kind of preface it with a little positivity, but then you get to the core. And that was, I think that's kind of a, a modus operandi for a lot of reporters in their preamble to a question. Uh, it's terrifying and I remember my my very first interview was with uh, a gentleman named Ray Hudson, who's now a, a, one of the most famous commentators in the United States. And Ray was, he's a fantastic guy. If anybody who knows him, he's wonderful Newcastle Geordie. And he was the head coach of DC United back in the day. And I went in there and he had a very laissez-faire attitude, shall we say, in the locker room. He was just a, a bundle of fun. And he comes walking out with an adult beverage with a tank top on <laughs> and, and shall we say underclad at the waist below, not to the extent that you're thinking, but somewhat underclad. And I didn't know how to do this. This is my first time. And he'd looked at me and raised an eyebrow. And I, I don't even remember the question I asked him. I just remember his reaction and, and thinking to myself, God, I hope I didn't ask him an absolute stupid question, which I probably did, but something along the lines of the game. Um, and I asked a, another question to Bob Gansler, who was the coach of the Kansas City Wizards. Back in the late 90s, and I, I, say, I said, Bob, he'd just drawn a game, and there was a last-minute equalizer. And I said, you know, Bob, this, you know, how's that, that loss feels, feel to you? Completely ruined it. It was a draw. And he looks at me, and he goes, well, Christian, we didn't lose the game. We drew. And I had to think of a quick recovery. Well, it has to feel like a loss, Bob. And, of course, that just compounded the misery. And a couple of shakes of the head from Bob, and safe to say that was the last interview with Bob. You and I have both been lucky enough to interview the great SAF, Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, mine was at the Coliseum, and I can look back, and there's, I think there's still some footage, and you can see the microphone shaking in my hand. <laughs> it was that terrifying. What was your experience like interviewing Fergie? Uh, similar. Twitchy bum time, squeaky bum time, I guess, to, to use one of Sir Alex's favorite phrases. Um, I interviewed him, uh, I think, about three or four times. And I think the first time was in Seattle uh, during the one of those preseason tours. Uh, they were playing Celtic, and I came up to him. And, I again, I, I there have been so many interviews, I can't remember what I asked him. Um, but uh, I was scared. And you have the, the, the microphone is shaking. This is a, you know, a, a giant of the game and probably the best manager that's ever walked the face of the earth. And here I am, some twit. You know, with with a sport coat and a microphone, asking him a ridiculous question, um, but he was gracious enough. He was professional. He's dealt with that. He dealt with it and had much more media experience than I did at the time as a member of the media. And he was very kind and and, and very direct and, and wanted to get it over with as possible because in that situation, American media was given access 
to talking to Sir Alex uh, in a situation where they're not usually given that type of access overseas or in the UK. So he adapted to it well, and I think I did as well. But it was interesting, and there was times when I've talked to Pele where I was extremely scared and nervous. And um, it's you know these are your heroes. I mean, Alessandro Del Piero was another one where I was you know starstruck. The first time I saw him, I was a big fan of his. And um, you just try and be professional and, and keep your wits about you and ask them pertinent questions that are relevant. They appreciate that. You know, a manager or a player or anybody and a professional affiliated with any game of any sport will appreciate a well thought out question that is relevant and pertinent, that's not petulant, that's not gossipy, that really wants to get to the core of of, a, of an issue and. And you want to elicit the best response you can out of them. So it's an art to do that. Um, and there are a few people, I think, in my estimation, that really do it well. Most people don't do it well, in my estimation. And uh, when it's done well, it, it's, it, it can be relevant to broadcast and bring out the, the best response. And you can see it, another side or uh, an insight to something that you didn't see before. And that, to me, is the key to asking a good question. Soccer in the late 90s, early 2000s in, in this country really was uh, kind of like a blip on the landscape. But then it kind of seemed to turbocharge in, in the 2000s. And we were lucky enough to be on, on that rocket as the sport just lifted off and became more widespread and certainly more global from the U.S. perspective. What was, what was that like seeing the development of the sport and all of a sudden, you know, the Premier League's big and, and, and these summer tours became these huge monster events that they, they are to this day. But back then, this was the first time it kind of happened. What was that experience like being part of that? Awesome, to, to use an overused word. It was brilliant. I mean, it went to relative obscurity or calling Bundesliga games at an orange ball in a booth on a Saturday morning in 1997. And then the next thing you know, you're watching Tim Howard's Manchester United debut interviewing Pele at Giant Stadium, or at, um, yeah, at Giant Stadium in front of 85,000 people. That's kind of a, an example of the growth that I think that we saw transpire in the space of about, you know, 10 years or so. It's still going on today and it continues. The, the football we see today on TV and the coverage and the media attention combined with technology, but also just the overall growth of the game is exponentially uh, bigger than, than than we experienced, that I experienced in those in those young days. But it was fantastic to watch because you're seeing something develop. And it was a time that was reflective of what was happening in the current events of the time where so much technological change was happening in the 2000s with the advent of you know, expanded satellite television with the the advent of, of the smartphone, which is coming in, which is just in its infancy, and all these media platforms popping up and, and getting more accessibility to the game and, and seeing things that, you know, traditionally that you and I grew up, especially you growing up with the game, that we didn't get to see growing up. It was an, a different dimension to it. And to be a part of that dimension and grow with it was fantastic. As we begin to wrap this up, Marzi, I want to ask a couple of favorites questions <laughs> and you have probably commentated on thousands of games. And so this is going to be a hard one for you to reach into that old foggy memory of yours. But is, is there a game that really stands out as the favorite, most favorite game you announced and did play by play for? Oh, oh, it's a difficult question. I mean, there's been so many, I remember the three goals down, Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur. I, I 
can't recall the year. I want to say 2002 or three, somewhere around the early 2000s. It was the, the speech that Fergie made famous by saying, come on, it's Tottenham, lads. And then they go out and win at 5-3. Uh, that one stands out to me. Uh, as far as others, uh, you know, there are many uh, Major League Soccer broadcasts that are a part of the, the comeback from the LA Galaxy in the 2001 playoffs uh, against uh, then Landon Donovan's San Jose Earthquakes. was was quite amazing to watch from the sidelines. Uh, it was absolute insanity at Little Spartan Stadium up in San Jose on the campus of San Jose State University. Those are some of the highlights, but there's just been so many, Nick, and so many brilliant games. And, you know, as you get older, <laughs> everything blurs together. And as a spectator, I was there for the Zlatan debut uh, in Major League Soccer, uh, sitting, you know, on the, on the halfway line. And that for me is, you know, one of my best sports experiences, even though I was just a spectator at the time. But yeah, there's just been it's so many things to to watch it's hard to really pin pin down one single moment and you've you've mentioned uh you know mentorship and having people to look up to in terms of play-by-play announcing do, do you have a favorite and and what is the quality she or he brings to their broadcasts i there are so many different there's no it's like football there's more than one way to play the game and be successful at it and i think that's the way of, of broadcasting as well Everybody has a different style and, and brings a different type of excellence. For me, I, I really enjoy the commentary of Derek Ray. I think his preparation and attention to nuance is bar none the best out there. Peter Drury, who we hear a lot of on the Champions League and the Premier League in the past, is brilliant. John Champion is good. I really hold a lot of the English announcers in the highest regard. Um, they tend to be less verbose but more succinct and to the point um, – those are just some of the names that pop up uh, to me. So, yeah, I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm an old school traditionalist as well. So I, I like some. Of the, and Martin Tyler, it, you know, goes back to he was the voice as I was coming up, and some of his his calls, you know, the Beckham kick against uh, Greece. Just you know, I still get shivers on my spine listening to him. Um, so yeah, those those are probably at the top of my list right now. And then. Anything crazy happening in broadcast? Because I, I have to bring up one of the stories, and I, I want to see. <laughs> I know where this is going. There was there there was a Dutch Eredivisie game that you did one time, and due to a due to a little snafu, oh. the uh, the second half was played as the first half, and then the first half was played as the second half, and about halfway through the, well, I, I think five minutes into the first half of the second half, you realized that something was amiss. So yeah. tell us about that story a little bit. Oh, you, you, I knew you were going to bring this up. Well, back in the day, late 90s, Dutch era Divisie. Actually, I think this it might have been one of Zlatan's games at Ajax. But back in the day, it was called Live From Tape, which means the game had been recorded. The game had already been played. But it was the first time it was being played on Fox International. Well... Back in the day, we didn't have digital recordings. We had it on tape. You put one tape in for the first half, one tape in for the second half. And then once that clock hits at the top of the hour, you play the first half tape and off you go. Well, I myself wanted to remain blind to the results because I didn't want to know, have prejudiced commentary and know what was coming beforehand. So I turned off my phone and you know tried to keep my head down and not be aware of anything going on and then go into the game fresh, 
like I hadn't seen it. Just basically like any commentator would go into a live game. Well, as I'm, as the players are warming up, they're sweaty. I'm like, okay, well, maybe they just got their, you know, they've got a hard nosed coach. And then, then I start seeing grass stains all over their kits and boots are muddy and players are, you know, dry, worn out, just visibly t- distraught, fatigued, tired, what you will. And I just thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And then I start seeing, you know, guys that were coming on and back and the substitute patterns reversed. They were the inverse of what they were. And I'm like, wait, he can't come back on. Even I know that's not correct. And then I just, in the middle of the game, it must have been about midway through, or probably 10 to 15 minutes into the first half, which was, you know, minute 60, because we played the second half first. I came to the, the producer, who I will not name. I said, hey, this is the second half. He's like, yes, we've made the mistake. And I said, okay, well, when you have a mistake of that proportion happen, you go to what they call contingency programming, meaning... If you lose a feed, there's a rerun of some other show or a pre-recorded version of some other show that you air instead. It happens when there's you know rain delays in baseball or thunder weather delays, what have you, whatever can happen. I said, hey, let's go to contingency programming. No, the producer wouldn't want, didn't want to. I'm trying to call this game, mind you. And in the middle of this game, I'm having this argument as well as trying to call this game. Wasn't the best English speaker so I don't. I think my words got lost in translation. It's safe to say this boy wasn't happy. I lose the fight because the producer puts his foot down, and I end up calling the first half into the second half, all the way to, well, I guess you'd say the completion of the game, which would have been minute forty-five. So there it is. And then, boy, you know, you know, sir, what a beating I took for that one. But you know, hey, it, it makes for great. It makes for a good story over a pint. Oh, the great days of sports <laughs> world. Malzi, how do people get in touch with you if they have some questions about how to further their career in this awesome job of play-by-play announcing? Um, I'm pretty simple these days. Just pl- uh, feel, re- feel free to reach me at C Miles Sports. That's C-M-I-L-E-S-S-P-O-R-T-S on Twitter. Uh, you can reach me there. Happy to reach out and DM me or reach out and connect Appreciate a follow too, um, and you know, be happy to you know, help any commentator coming up because I think that's kind of incumbent upon us who have you know gone through this to help help the next generation come up and do whatever we can to further their career. The Bear and the Bull will, will be back next week, and as always, you can reach me at Nick Webster on Twitter. You can find Cal South on Instagram, Facebook, and also Twitter. For Christian Miles. Thank you so much for coming on Bear on the Ball. Can't wait to hear your next broadcast. Thanks, mate.